I'm author and athlete Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. Visit bradkearns.com for great resources on healthy eating, exercise, and lifestyle. And here we go with the show. The anaerobic threshold represents the pace that you can maintain for an all-out effort of around one hour. How about just say an hour? So don't go hard for over an hour, ever, unless it's the big race day, and then you pull out the stops and you uh, push yourself to a peak performance and then recover afterward, and that's wonderful once in a while. So if the brain doesn't need to be trained to suffer, then we add on to that that the anaerobic muscle fibers, the ones that help you go at a fast pace, do not require a, a lot of volume of training to be honed to be uh, optimal. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. It is time for the 87% podcast. Yes, I'm going to title it that because I read one of the most important and impactful quotes about athletic training that I've seen in a long time. And here it is. Jakob Ingebrigtsen estimates that he seldom pushes himself beyond 87% of his maximum effort in workouts. Yes, 87%, so that he can preserve the best of himself on race day. And it came from a New York Times feature article 
about Jakob Ingebrigtsen, the Norwegian 1,500-meter Olympic champion, the 5,000-meter world champion, 1,500-meter runner-up. He is dominating middle-distance running on the world stage after an incredibly rapid and high-profile ascension from his teenage years. Now he's only 21 years old, and he's at the very top of the world. He's an absolute machine. You can watch him on YouTube in some of these races where he just goes to the front and dares anyone to pass him, and he just wears out the greatest runner on the planet with this incredibly strategic and powerful running strategy at his preferred distance of 1,500 meters. And now he's the best 5,000 meter. That's 3.1 miles. 1,500 meters is just short of a mile. Um, His training methods are quite unique. It's all been designed by his father and his two older brothers who are great champions in their own right. So there's these three running Ingebrigtsen brothers from Norway, and they've all reached the very highest level in the world. Uh, His brother, Jakob's oldest brother, Henrik, is a European champion, fifth place in the 2012 London Olympics at 1,500 meters. Uh, The second brother, Philip, is also a European champion and a best of three minutes and 30 seconds in the 1,500 meters. Jakob has run 328. Of course, he's won the European title, the world title, the Olympic gold. So this one family, fascinating uh, domination of the middle distance running scene from a small town in Norway and very self-contained. They have a reality show I'll tell you about shortly, uh, but coached by their father, Geert, a very interesting character that you will get fascinated with if you watch the show. Uh, but he is a, um, a self-studied, uh, no bias, just came into this whole scene without any athletic background or running background of his own and studied the training methods of the elite runners throughout time uh, without any preconceived notions and created this very novel and highly effective training program. But it's quite different than the traditional model that we've seen practiced by middle distance and long distance runners for decades. So I want to tell you uh, about some of their strategies And of course, this is representing the cutting edge and possibly some widespread revisions in the future to how middle distance and long distance athletes train. So uh, some of the uniqueness of their method. So this idea that Jakob rarely, if ever, exceeds 87% of his capacity in training is a wonderful, mind-blowing insight to me, especially when I reflect on my sprint workouts where I'm quite frequently or routinely going faster than that, thinking that I need to go fast to get better. But being able to dial it back a little bit can deliver some wonderful benefits. One of them is the consistent and uninterrupted improvement from working at that anaerobic threshold, but not exceeding it. Because when you get up around 87%, that represents estimation of anaerobic threshold. And when you start to go faster than that, uh, the definition of anaerobic threshold is where uh, the lactate starts to accumulate in the bloodstream faster than you can buffer it. And so you look on a graph in exercise physiology lore, and there's an inflection point in the graph. So you have kind of a, a steady... Uh, angle of the line going up representing uh, your pace and the accumulation of, accordingly, the accumulation of uh, blood lactate levels, right? So you're going faster, faster, faster. The lactate is accumulating. Uh, You're getting up into the measurements. They measure it in millimoles. And so the point of four millimoles of blood lactate is believed to be representative of anaerobic threshold. But if you were asked to keep going faster 
from that point, you would have a spike in the linear pattern of the graph. In other words, to ask yourself to go faster than threshold requires uh, a significant increase in lactate accumulation because it's so tough. You're already going fast. And so the anaerobic threshold represents the pace that you can maintain for an all-out effort of around one hour. So if you were asked to race all out for all the marbles uh, at a certain speed, whether you're pedaling a bicycle, like a bicycle time trial, or whether you're running a race, so the elites will run a half marathon in an hour, uh, that is equating to anaerobic threshold. So you can kind of uh, maintain this four millimole for around an hour, and then you'll crap out, of course. And so in a workout, when you're doing intervals that last for a couple minutes or one minute or three minutes or five minutes or seven minutes, um, it's quite easy to exceed anaerobic threshold for a set of three-minute efforts, right? Uh, but the appropriateness of training um, can be counterproductive because even though you're putting in a good time, um, that uh, disruption to the system where you're accumulating lactate faster than you can remove it uh, over the course of this uh, interval workout um, can be uh, fatiguing, cause delayed recovery, and higher risk of injuries and breakdown because of the stress impact of the workout. And so we've known for a long time that training at or even a bit below anaerobic threshold can be highly effective to teach your body to buffer lactate more effectively and thereby be able to maintain a faster pace during a race. Uh, a race of an hour or uh, less because you're still uh, training the same energy systems, even if you're training for uh, a 13-minute race or a three-and-a-half-minute race, uh, like the two distances that Jakob completes. So in the Ingebrigtsen training protocol, uh, working right around that anaerobic threshold is very important, so important that they will take portable blood lactate meters out onto the training ground, the track or the hills, wherever they are, and prick their fingers frequently during the workout to get that uh, important millimolar reading, the accumulation of blood lactate, uh, perhaps at the top of the hill. When they finish the interval, <laughs> they'll get their hands on their knees for one second, and then they'll prick their finger and look at that reading. And the, the coach, Father Garrett, will shout at them if they so much as go one second faster than uh, was programmed for a certain interval. So he's very, very careful. The athletes are very careful to work at or below that threshold, knowing that there is an extreme cost to pay in terms of recovery, in terms of adaptability, when you go a little bit too hard in a workout that's already pretty challenging. Um, so you can uh, read more about the uh, types of workouts that the brothers do. Um, they look super tough and challenging when you're looking at the different ways that they work on threshold. For example, uh, running a 10-kilometer time trial at anaerobic threshold, running 10 times 1 kilometer with an appropriate amount of rest in between those 1-kilometer efforts, which would take the uh, elite runner, um, just around three minutes, maybe a little less. They will do five times 2K, or they will do 30 times 400 meters right around that anaerobic threshold pace. If they're doing hill workout, one of the favorite workouts is two sets of 10 times 200 meters on the hill. So that would be 20 hill repeats of 200 meters. Now, think about this when you go, wow, what a, uh, a difficult workout. Um, these guys are elite athletes, 
and they're running within their capabilities, never over 87%. So going up a hill 20 times, but right in that cruise level pace where they're working hard, remember it represents the pace they could maintain for an hour all out race for all the marbles. But in a general workout setting, it's not too much trouble to run as short a distance as 200 meters, or even to run as short a distance as one kilometer lasting a few minutes when you're talking about your all out pace that you can maintain for an hour. Now, here's the key. They do this a lot, day after day after day. So they are training at the very highest level and Jakob is delivering uh, you know, historic times for age 21. He's been doing so since he was just a teenager, shattering the world age group records for uh, running times at 1500 meters, going back to um, his first emergence onto the global scene. When he was 16 years old, he ran in the pre-classic in Eugene, Oregon against the world's greatest distance runners uh, in the mile and covered it in three minutes and 56 seconds. So he broke four minutes for the mile, the legendary four minute per mile barrier that no human had done until Roger Bannister did in 1954. And now in modern times, that was back in 2017, he did it as a 16 year old. Absolutely incredible. So what they're doing is they're training frequently at this anaerobic threshold pace, sometimes doing two workouts per day where they're picking and choosing one of those protocols that I mentioned uh, running it right up there around that 87% level and going you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, building and building their capabilities to run at high speed. And so when it comes time to race on the track in an elite international event, of course, they're going to go way over anaerobic threshold, but these don't happen very frequently because they're so stressful. And so look at someone's racing card for a year, an elite middle distance runner, maybe they'll do a dozen races or something like that. Uh, but the rest of it is training and well within one's capability. So I think there's so much takeaway for the average runner, competitive runner that wants to get better without that constant battle of breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury from doing workouts that are too badass. And I'm referencing myself too as a, a master's division uh, track and field and trying to train for uh, an event like the 400 meters. Um, if I tone that down to 87% when I'm doing my interval workouts, calculated off my best pace for an all-out race, it's going to be a lot slower than my historical workout patterns. And boy, is that a great takeaway because I can also look at my historical patterns and see these minor injuries and delayed recovery and feeling tired a day after the workout when the stress hormones clear, the endorphin buzz drops, and you realize that, eh, maybe you pushed it a little too hard yesterday in that exciting experience that you had at the track or at the gym or whatever uh, goals you're pursuing. So this uh, inspiration from Jakob Ingebrigtsen is to tone it down a little bit and respect the idea that even the greatest middle distance runner in the world is working at 87% capacity or below. And hey, maybe he has the genetic gifts and the resiliency to train harder than the average person. So maybe we should take that 87% and put it down to an 82 or an 85 or something like that, right? So we don't have to model exactly, but we can certainly take the spirit of what the greatest runner is doing and apply it to our own peak performance goals. Um, here's the problem. Uh, most of us are working relatively too hard and furthermore, relatively speaking, 
harder than the world's great elite distance runners. In other words, if I'm running intervals at 90% of my maximum, they're a heck of a lot slower than Ingebrigtsen's, but relatively speaking, I'm pushing my body harder than an elite athlete, which is a ridiculous notion. Okay, so we want to tone things down and always appreciate that perspective that everything is relative. So I talk a lot about the 180 minus age representing your aerobic limit for a purely or a predominantly aerobic workout. And if you exceed 180 minus your age in beats per minute, you're drifting into a more glucose burning workout with lower fat oxidation per minute. And so we wanna work in that sweet spot of 180 minus age or below. Now, guess what? For an unfit enthusiast, that might mean a brisk walk. So there might not even be a rationale for jogging yet until you get in better shape and you can maintain a brisk walk and not see that heart rate go into the the beeping numbers exceeding that 180 minus age. And it's super frustrating because uh, you're certainly capable of uh, running, jogging, and going for five miles or seven miles or whatever you're, uh, you've performed so far. But in order to develop and continue to progress without interruption, that's when you want to tone things down and honor the importance of uh, aerobic conditioning. And then when we're going hard, uh, it's not time to just unleash the dragon and go until you're puking on the side of the track. You want to keep that under control as well. Now, in terms of the volume and honoring the example from the elite runners, we want to slash that volume because we don't have the capacity that an elite runner has that's running day in and day out. So um, reading these reports of two sets of 10 times 200 hill repeats or doing 30 times 400 meters at anaerobic threshold and all but the very highest trained Uh, recreational amateur athletes might want to slash that down to, let's say, eight or 10 times 400 meters at anaerobic threshold if you're super fit. And if you're not super fit, maybe you're going to work at uh, four or six or eight times 200 meters and still at that uh, relatively comfortable but still snappy pace that's going to bring you a wonderful training effect. Okay. Um, In contrast, and I'm thinking back to my days as a pretty competent high school runner, we would do workouts like six to eight times 400 meters, pretty much near maximum 100% effort. Maybe it was 93 or something. Um, You know, I could do a 56 second quarter and we'd do repeats of 61 or 62. Um, So it's ridiculously close to maximum output. And yes, after you do six or eight of those, you are pretty thrashed and trashed. And so the evolution of training uh, modeled beautifully by the Ingebrigtsen brothers is to get away from that model of struggling and suffering and crushing yourself. And now I'm speaking to the broader audience of Uh, whatever, CrossFit enthusiasts, people turning on the Peloton machine and trying to honor the exhortations from the Pepe instructor to go and push their bodies into the high heart rate ranges and do this many intervals and do three more. And ha ha, I was just kidding. I actually meant four more. So let's see one more. Let's see what you got in you. And you're going to end these workouts with a sense of exhaustion and depletion as evidenced by, for example, diminished energy in general for the rest of the day, 
uh, perhaps some sugar cravings or some real burnout episodes in the evening where you're just crashed out on the couch because you pushed yourself so hard at that 6 a.m. Uh, pedaling session or out there with the lively running group the previous evening. And then you're kind of feeling like you're paying the price uh, 24 or 36 hours later. So let's talk a little bit more about um, Jakob's unique training uh, protocol. Here's one. He rarely runs an individual workout over one hour. Oh, that's a mind blower because the model for middle distance, long distance runners for decades has been, they put in a lot of over distance work. The Sunday traditional long run where even a miler will run for two hours or two and a half hours and get that base mileage up. Everyone's obsessed with mileage, especially in the track scene. Uh, even today when we have uh, so much more nuance and sophistication, but runners still talk in that vernacular. Uh, when I interviewed Shelby Houlihan, she was mentioning how her weekly mileage has changed over her career from college into pros. And it's still like this main reference point for uh, what your training program's representing. And by and large, there's a lot of uh, people, especially in the uh, traditional Western approach, like collegiate running programs, where they're just trying to increase the mileage steadily and sensibly over time and get up to a certain number that is believed to represent um, elite performance level. Uh, but it's kind of ridiculous to think, here's the greatest runner in the world who rarely runs over one hour. And if we sampled uh, you know, the average recreational uh, participant in half marathon, marathon, even triathlon, uh, a lot of people are out there running uh, well over an hour quite frequently. And guess what? They're doing it pretty slowly. Uh, in Jakob's case, he rarely, he has a, a small percentage of his total mileage. That's that slow jogging that we tend to um, emphasize as important. And I'm going to talk about Kipchoge as well. I've talked about him on previous shows, uh, the greatest marathoner of all time, slightly different training protocol because he's training for a two hour race rather than a three and a half minute race, like Jakob's uh, main goals here. Uh, but he is uh, rarely putting in that really slow jogging. Uh, they call it long, slow distance. Sometimes they call it junk mileage, where you're just out there trotting along in the name of improving your, your base but it has minimal correlation to your competitive performance, especially when you're an elite runner going fast. And so it appears that Jakob is kind of uh, minimizing the slow stuff and also uh, strictly limiting the super fast, crazy stuff at the top end and instead training that for a, a lot of work right around that magical anaerobic threshold level, rarely exceeding 87% of maximum. So he's doing things like strides and drills and hill repeats and a bit of jogging, of course, uh, warming up and cooling down for every workout. You're going to accumulate some miles of jogging, but the main focus are on these sets. And you can see this on the reality show where these guys are out circling the track um, just about every episode. Uh, they're putting in a lot of hard work, but it's right in that sweet spot. Um, the uh, calculation, uh, Jakob is running around 180 kilometers a week. That represents 112 miles. So that's still what we might call high mileage. Uh, but again, it's not that uh, extra stress of doing super hard workouts and then jogging and having that uh, turn into a high mileage week. You see the difference here? So um, it, it's uh, criticized that a lot of... Um, 
traditional Western approach to training protocols are people crushing themselves in super stressful workouts, which require a lot of recovery time, bring a high risk of injury and breakdown. And accordingly, because these workouts are so stressful, this type of athlete following this protocol is compelled to do a lot of very slow jogging because they're torched from their Tuesday evening track session. And so Wednesday morning, they're going to go run eight or nine minute miles. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near-infrared light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes, and there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Um, Here's another key attribute uh, from Jakob's training. Uh, He claims to have never missed a uh, formally uh, planned, structured session since he was a little kid, 10 years old. I might, I think he might've said five years old. And definitely he started training very seriously uh, at a very young age. And the protocol put together by the father is a pretty strict and uh, methodical uh, training strategy. They go to training camp a couple times a year. Every workout is caf- carefully regulated and carefully contemplated. And he's never missed a session. So if you can say that, 
and you're also kicking ass on the world stage, that means your training is highly effective. And I think all of us might reflect, hey, we've planned these uh, training schedules, maybe paid a coach or consulted a book or internet article about how to train a 12-week training program for your half marathon goal race. And if you adhered to it, I guess that would uh, say that it's more effective than one where you kind of fell apart and fell off it and perhaps did that repeatedly if you've had time off and then returned and tried to do the same old thing that was clearly too stressful or ineffective by virtue of you not being able to adhere to what was planned. Okay, never missing a formally structured session, uh, working within a tight range of training intensities whereby the anaerobic threshold is emphasized sometimes at twice daily workouts. Who does this remind you of? That's right, the great marathoner Eluid Kipchoge, where his workouts are landing in a tight range that's representative of around 80% of his maximum capacity. So if Jakob's doing these track sessions that are dancing around uh, 87%, or dancing up to, I should say, 87%, Kipchoge is doing something very similar, but more appropriate for marathon training. So his workouts are probably... Um, longer duration intervals and a little bit slower or less percentage of capacity. Kipchoge also is landing his uh, volume in a very tight range of 120 to 130 miles a week with almost no tapering, which is an incredible insight as well. So even before a major marathon, Kipchoge will train, train, train as usual, working at that 80% capacity. So well within his capacity, uh, low score on the overall stress scale of the stress impact of the workout, but tremendously impressive and tremendously consistent by any outside observer. So he's moving along pretty quickly because when you think, look, here's a guy that can run four minutes and 38 seconds per mile for 26 consecutive miles, and you take 80% off that, um, that's, you know, what, uh, a a six-minute mile in training or a five-something, which is still tremendously fast. But for him, it's, you know, think about going a minute and a half slower than your own personal marathon race pace. So if you're a competent recreational runner, let's say you can do a four-hour marathon, which these days is uh, considered pretty fast. It's in the top 20% of finishers in the Los Angeles Marathon, for example. And I believe that represents, oh, is it a nine-minute pace per mile? Sorry if I'm off there a lot, but then add a minute and a half. So you're running 10, 30 miles in a workout, which a four-hour marathoner would scoff at, like, wow, this is so slow. I can barely, (laughs) barely keep my balance. But that is how the elites train. So we want to emphasize that point of applying this protocol to your own training methods and your own uh, race pace and your own capabilities at anaerobic threshold, for example. Unfortunately, many, if not most, competitive amateurs are not following this protocol. And instead, you're busting yourself with these crushing workouts that require a lot of recovery time, and then in turn, doing some really, really easy stuff, which might not give you the greatest return on investment. Um, So it's something to uh, recalibrate here and consider. I'm certainly considering it very strongly and trying to implement this concept of backing off on the uh, most intense workouts. And then on the flip side, being more consistent with the basic training protocol. So it's not like this all or nothing thing. And this potentially 
uh, or theoretically could conflict with the very popular notion these days of what they call polarized training, where you're either going really hard or you're going easy. Um, I don't think you could characterize Jakob's training protocol as polarized, uh, nor for Kipchoge. But I think the beautiful message that the polarized training is trying to convey is that we want to stay out of that uh, familiar zone. Uh, the exercise physiologists call it the black hole, where you're working just a little bit too hard for your own good. So in the case of middle distance, you're going, you're exceeding that 87%. You're going into uh, the lactate accumulation uh, energy zones. And for the pure endurance athlete, like a marathoner or a triathlete, you're going over that 80%, over that maximum aerobic heart rate and drifting around in this kind of hard zone, as Dave Scott says, which is highly counterproductive. And so um, for both the elite examples that I'm talking about, that's certainly not the case. So they're kind of uh, just working at the highest comfortable level, could we call it that? And again, they're flying down the road uh, doing these tremendously impressive workouts, but we also have to um, uh, extrapolate that to their competitive pace and realize that they're well within their capabilities, more so than the average uh, recreational guy like this master's athlete talking to you and doing his 400 meter and 200 meter repeats at a pace that's too close to my maximum for my own good. Um, there's interesting comment recently from Huberman Lab podcast where Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about uh, not wanting to chronically overproduce the stress hormones. And one of the recommendations, especially in the backdrop of hectic high-stress modern life, where we are routinely calling upon fight-or-flight mechanisms for the entire stressful workday or difficult uh, interpersonal interactions, right? We're constantly in this uh, prolonged stress mode, overconsumption of digital entertainment and mobile device technology. All these things are kind of adding up uh, on the stress scale to where we're overstressing ourselves in a chronic manner every day. And he wants you to uh, limit uh, difficult workouts to an hour 15 or less. And identifying that from research as sort of a cutoff point where if you're in the gym working hard and the music's pumping and you're going from one set to the other set to the other set, but you're in there for longer than an hour and 15 minutes, or if you're doing some somewhat challenging a long distance bike ride in the pack or doing a, a trail run that's lasting for longer than that and working up at those challenging heart rates, that identifies a workout that's chronically stressful or excessively stressful and have a difficult time uh, recovering from and benefiting from. So I mentioned the reality show briefly. It's a really fascinating and well-done show. So I'd give a plug to go look at the Team Ingebrigtsen reality show. But what's really cool is that the show was uh, filmed over many years. And so you see this young kid, young Jakob at 13, I believe, when they started filming. And then he's 15 in the next season. And he's looking up to these amazing brothers who are like rock stars in Norway. They're some of the most famous athletes, highly celebrated. Their names are, uh, pictures are on billboards when the big track meet comes to Oslo every year, the Bislett Games. And he's doing these little uh, one-off interviews where he says, yeah, my goal is to be, uh, you know, someday uh, beat my brothers and be the best in the world. And it's kind of funny to hear this teenager with swagger uh, talking to the camera at age 13 or age 15. And then here he is winning the Olympic gold medal, uh, just as he predicted. 
And I talked about that 356 mile he ran at age 16, just sensational and watch out. And then here he comes. So um, go check out the reality show to see a window into the background of a really hard training family. And the whole thing's a family affair. There's like seven kids and everybody's involved one way or the other. Uh, Pretty cool. Anyway, um, this guy is no joke. And I was fascinated in Eugene watching the World Track and Field Championships where he picked up a silver medal in the 1500 meters. And he was absolutely crushed and super pissed after the race. Um, He's got so much confidence and speaks honestly and doesn't sugarcoat things. And he was just livid after the race. He said he made some tactical mistakes and he actually told the cameras that he was embarrassed to get a silver medal at the world championships at age 21. So his standards are impossibly high. And then he goes out and executes. So uh, that's pretty fantastic. So uh, let's talk about this 87% and how you can practically apply it to um, some calculations to make your workouts work for you. Um, So I talked about my uh, main sprinting goal of doing the 400 meters, one lap around the track, and my estimated best time uh, right now is around one minute. So the way to calculate 87% is you put uh, 60 into the calculator and then uh, hit the divide key divided by 0.87. And then it spits out, um, in the case of 60 divided by 0.87, that would be a a minute nine or 69. And so if you're, let's say, a person who can run um, six-minute miles for 10K, uh, a six-minute mile is 360 seconds. Uh, Hit divide by 0.87, and you get the calculation of six minutes and 53 seconds per mile. Uh, It'll come out in a total, and then you got to divide by uh, 60 and figure out the pace per mile. And so if you are a six minute 10K person, which is really fast nowadays, that's a 37 minute 10K, you're going to do your, uh, your threshold sessions at a pace of six minutes and 53 seconds per mile. And I think any six minute per mile 10K runner is going to go 653. That's ridiculously slow. I can do way better than that. Think about doing mile repeats. Um, most people would go out there and run the same speed as they can run for 10K. And so if you're going way slower than that, boy, that gives you a real break on the energy systems and the stress response to workouts whereby you can go and put in uh, a good consistent pattern of such workouts, working that anaerobic threshold without that risk of breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. Uh, Elaine Thompson, the queen of sprinting in the Olympics, she has back-to-back gold medals in the 100 and 200 meters in Rio and in Tokyo. Uh, The great Jamaican sprinter, one of the fastest females of all time, the fastest living human at 100 meters with her 10.54 time from 2021. I believe uh, very strongly that's the fastest a female has ever run uh, due to the existing world record being a little bit controversial with a broken wind meter for Flojo back in 1988. But anyway, Elaine is fast. Her name is Fast Elaine on Instagram, so follow her. Uh, But some uh, information about her training uh, contends that she runs her early season intervals at around 77% of her capacity. So in my own personal example, if I'm uh, using that uh, benchmark of 60 seconds for 400 meters, 77% of that is a minute 18 
for 400 meters if I'm doing a workout calculation. That's so slow, I don't even bother going to the track. I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm wasting my time. I need to hurt. I need to suffer. I need to push myself. Well, here's the greatest sprinter on the planet, the fastest female of all time, working at that very comfortable rate. Again, this is early season stuff. And as they progress toward peak competitive events, they're going to do faster stuff. They do a lot of shorter work. I watch them practicing in Eugene and they'll do a lot of explosive 30 meter starts with extensive rest in between. And so they're working that maximum explosive capacity. Uh, But just that representative example of going out there in early season and doing stuff at 77%, that is going to allow you to progress steadily without all that risk and all my fallout that I've experienced from nagging aches and pains and minor injuries that keep popping up when you think you're okay. All right. So the takeaway of this whole deal here is build and build and build without interruption from overly stressful workouts. Make sure that you end any type of vigorous or stressful session uh, well under an hour and 15 minutes. How about just say an hour? So don't go hard for over an hour ever, unless it's the big race day. And then you pull out the stops and you uh, push yourself to a peak performance and then recover afterward. And that's wonderful once in a while. Um, If you want to get a lactate meter, man, everybody's all into tech these days. We didn't have any of that stuff. It seemed like we did okay, but this stuff could be pretty helpful uh, over and above heart rate, which is extremely helpful and probably mandatory for any serious endurance athlete to be checking that heart rate during workouts. And of course, we know what the aerobic maximum is, 180 minus age. When it comes to anaerobic threshold, it's a little more difficult to calculate, but maybe you can get some uh, anecdotal data amassed on yourself where you realize that anything over 160 or 165 or whatever represents a, a, a discernible increase in degree of difficulty, so much so that it might represent a spike in the increased degree of difficulty. And you want to work well below that to be comfortable and conservative. And that's how you build as an athlete from everything from a fast middle distance runner with a competitive event lasting three and a half minutes, all the way up to extreme ultra distance runner, marathon runner going for two hours or even more. Oh, now's the time when the highly motivated, uh, driven competitive types are raising their hands and shaking their heads in the audience going, wait a second, if I don't push myself in training, how am I ever going to get competitively toned to handle uh, the severe challenge that happens on race day? And I want to uh, reference some great commentary from Dr. Phil Maffetone, the godfather of endurance training. He has some amazing interviews that are not published anywhere except for the Primal Endurance Mastery course. So when you enroll in that, you are going to get uh, wonderful hours of interviews, maybe three hours, okay, uh, where I sat with Dr. Phil at his home in Arizona, and we talked for a long time about all aspects of healthy endurance training. And again, you're not going to find this anywhere except on the course, but he made this wonderful uh, contention that first and foremost, the brain does not need to be trained repeatedly to suffer. The brain is going to pull through when you ask yourself to summon a peak performance effort, uh, a perceived life or death effort, right? So if you're going and running 26 miles or you're running a 50K on the trails or you're doing a long distance triathlon and you start to feel tired, guess what? The brain is going to pull you through. It doesn't need to go there again and again and again in training to get honed and to get uh, you know competitive in, in that mindset and, and persevere. In fact, if you abuse the brain's uh, strong willpower and perseverance, it's not going to be there for you on race day. 
So if the brain doesn't need to be trained to suffer, then we add on to that, that the anaerobic muscle fibers, the ones that help you go at a fast pace, do not require a, a lot of volume of training to be honed, to be uh, optimal. The anaerobic muscle fibers, by definition, fire explosively to allow for fast pace. And yes, they are definitely recruited when you're going for uh, an hour duration all-out race at anaerobic threshold, but you don't need to go over and over and over into uh, the highly anaerobic, highly explosive output, because while these anaerobic muscle fibers fire explosively, they also require a lot of downtime after working. The power lifters and the high-strength athletes know this, where they will go in, they'll do their set, uh, lifting a lot of heavy weight. Uh, maybe do another, maybe do another, uh, but then they're going to go through training protocol where there's a lot of days where they're not challenging those muscle fibers in the central nervous system to perform explosively over and over again. There's more rest between sets and all that good stuff. So we want to kind of uh, not traffic in uh, overtraining the very delicate, sensitive, and explosive anaerobic muscle fibers. So what does that leave us? That's the aerobic energy-producing enzymes and muscle fibers. And guess what? They love to be trained at volume, right? But the best way to train the aerobic system is at a very comfortable pace and heart rate. So when you're training aerobically and you're monitoring and minding that 180 minus age cutoff, that means you're leading a healthy, active lifestyle with plenty of low-level general everyday movement. Walking the dog counts as an aerobic training session. Pedaling your bicycle over to the farmer's market, your cruiser bike at slow speed. Everything counts and nurtures that aerobic system at a comfortable pace. And your formal workouts sure as heck better be at or below that 180 minus age number because that's when they're truly aerobic. So you can train that aerobic system. Guess what? The aerobic muscle fibers feed the anaerobic muscle fibers. So even the even though the anaerobic muscle fibers uh, don't use oxygen, they are uh, benefited by the functioning of the aerobic system to remove waste products and things where after they've fired, perhaps, um, they're going to need some nurturing and support, some blood flow, some oxygen delivery. So that is the call for emphasizing aerobic conditioning and minimizing the anaerobic exercise and in general adhering to those wonderful guidelines like 180 minus age for aerobic conditioning. And then when you are working at anaerobic threshold, uh, you limit it to the proper threshold levels or below. In Jakob's case, that 87% applies. And for the marathoner, Kipchoge, he's working almost entirely at 80% or below. Great takeaways. Thank you for listening. Let me know what you think. Send us some email, podcast at bradventures.com, and share this show with a friend. I really appreciate you spreading the word. Dun, 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 dun. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near infrared for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation. 
where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The the benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.